The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg Radio. Chief Justice John Roberts has often talked about the collegiality among the justices and how the Supreme Court is different from the other institutions of government. There is a concrete expression of that collegiality in a tradition at the court that has prevailed for over a century. Before we go on to the bench to hear argument in a case, and before we go into the conference room to discuss a case, we pause for a moment and shake each other's hand. But the Supreme Court became like every other D.C. institution in one respect. It leaked. A series of CNN stories by Joan Biskupic, based on unidentified sources, revealed details of the maneuvering by the justices behind the scenes this term, including deliberations the justices conducted behind closed doors with no one else present. My guest is constitutional law professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. Steve, how surprising was this from a usually leak-proof institution? It's surprising. I think it was the volume of the leaks, June, that I found really unusual. It wasn't just, you know, one or two high-profile cases where we found out about some of the behind-the-scenes machinations. But it was actually just about every major case from the term. And so that's what, to me, set it apart from leaks we've seen lately. I mean, we know, for example, from Jan Crawford Greenberg that Chief Justice Roberts had changed his vote in the Obamacare case back in 2012. So it's not unheard of. I think it's the number of different leaks about this term that really made this run of stories, I think, so unusual. And, of course, we know that in the past there have been many instances where justices themselves have leaked information. So you can narrow the leakers down to a handful of people, the clerks, spouses, and the justices themselves. Perhaps it could be a justice. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised at all. And indeed, I think it's actually least likely that the leakers in this case were staff or clerks because they're the ones who would face the most serious professional ramifications if it was ever found out that they were the leakers. It wouldn't surprise me at all if at least some of these leaks are from the justices or from their spouses, you know, from individuals who might get a little egg on their face if we find out that they were the leakers who aren't going to suffer any direct professional consequences if somehow that comes out. So what would be the intent of leaking in this case? What would be the benefit to a leaker? I mean, I think the intent could be multiple things. Some of these leaks are clearly designed to embarrass Chief Justice Roberts. I think some of the leaks are to give some insight into why things didn't go the way that maybe conservatives had predicted. And I think that's why a lot of the speculation has centered on, for example, Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, maybe even Ginny Thomas, because it doesn't make sense why, for example, some of the more progressive justices would want some of these stories out there. So all that's just to say that I think there are lots of folks with different agendas when it comes to the Supreme Court. And I think that in this case, those agendas probably had something to do with making it clear to the public that the behind the scenes sort of shifts this term and all the big moves really were by the Chief Justice, which, you know, frankly, Jim, is something we already were fairly confident of. Exactly. You know, what I saw was interesting, but nothing shocked me. What was the most surprising thing to you? I wasn't shocked by almost any of it, June. I was a little surprised in the story about Justice Kavanaugh 
the extent to which he really had been pushing the court in the Trump financial records cases to consider this off-ramp, to hold these kinds of disputes are categorically non-justiciable, because that's at least to some degree inconsistent with what then-Judge Kavanaugh had written about the political question doctrine when he was on the D.C. Circuit. He was quite critical of the doctrine being used in exactly the manner it sounds like he was proposing. So that surprised me a bit, too, because it seemed inconsistent with Pryor's. But the more general stories about horse trading and about switching and about majorities coalescing as the opinions wrote, I mean, that's part of the court. I think the notion that the court picks one very clean vote at conference and then writes clean opinion and the votes never move, I think is belied by every single piece of historical evidence we have. What's different this year is that we're just privy to those shifts a little bit faster and more publicly than is typical. A lot was written about Chief Justice John Roberts maneuvering on controversial cases. Did it seem as if he exerted his power more this term than in previous terms? Yes. I mean, I think there's no question that the Chief Justice was at the center of this term. I think in a way, unlike any of his prior terms on the court, and frankly, June, probably unlike any other justice in, gosh, maybe even a century. I think that was to some degree, though, a matter of circumstance, that it was the kinds of cases the court had and the climate in which they were being decided. You know, it's easy enough to imagine a term with a different slate of cases where the chief's institutionalism wouldn't be as on display, where there might be more weird 5-4 majorities, where maybe it's Gorsuch switching sides, maybe even Kavanaugh, or fractured ones where you have just a total mosh of the justices. I think it was the nature of the docket this term, the visibility of what was going on, and you know, the fact that almost all of the big cases came down to the chief's vote in that context, of course, you know, he's going to be the one who controls all of that, added to the fact that he's, of course, already administratively responsible for the court, assigning opinions, running the ship behind the scenes. So I think both the term where the chief asserted himself and where any chief in his position would have had to. Is there one case where the CNN articles show that he exerted more influence than others? There was an emphasis on the DACA case. Yeah, I mean, I think the DACA case all along really was the bellwether. And there was some sort of speculating by court watchers as to whether there were some behind-the-scenes vaccinations. And one of the things I think comes out in the story, if the reporting is accurate, is that, no, the chief was actually a reliable vote for the challengers from the very first time they met. But unlike the LGBT cases, unlike a couple of other cases where things did seem to shift as the opinions were writing, you know, the 5-4 majority we saw in the DACA decision really was consistent with the very original vote at conference. And June, that's telling me because the DACA case looks so much like the census citizenship case from last term, where we know the chief actually did have a change of heart. And so I think it's interesting that in a very similar context, where it's really a question of just how much you know administration has to turn square corner, whereas a year ago, the chief really agonized over it. This year, he seemed fully on board with ruling against the president from the get-go. There was a lot of talk that the justices might take more Second Amendment cases this upcoming term after the New York case last term was found to be moot. And then when it turned out that they didn't take any Second Amendment cases, there was a lot of speculation that the conservatives couldn't find a fifth vote. And this CNN reporting confirmed that Roberts sent signals that he wouldn't be the fifth vote to overturn gun regulations. I think that may be, in some respects, the biggest headline and the biggest surprise out of all of the stories that leaked out of the court. We knew that the court had basically decided not to jump in on another big Second Amendment case, but we didn't know why. We were pretty sure it was because, you know, at least some of the justices 
were wary of whether they'd have a fifth vote, but we didn't know that the fifth vote they were wary of was the chief. So I don't know, June, if that's because he had softened in his views on the Second Amendment. I mean, he was in the majority in Heller and he was in the majority in McDonald in 2010. I think it might just be more that those cases now are touching his institutional sensibilities in a way that they wouldn't have and didn't when he wasn't the median justice. And that's why I think it's super interesting. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, how the justices' votes changed in the Trump subpoena cases. There was a remarkable breach of the Supreme Court's rules of confidentiality as a series of CNN stories based on unidentified sources revealed the inner workings of the court. Will it affect the justices' deliberations in the future? Deliberations Chief Justice John Roberts has described as almost sacrosanct. I am instead talking about a shared commitment to a genuine exchange of ideas and views through each step of the decision process. We need to know at each step that we are in this together. I've been talking to Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. Steve, one instance that I thought really illustrates what can happen during the drafting process and circulating of opinions was the Georgia copyright case. Justice Thomas lost the majority opinion in that case. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I mean, so this is something that, you know, court watchers are always looking at the sort of distribution of opinions over the course of a sitting. And so in December of last year, the court heard 12 cases. And Chief Justice Roberts had two opinions. Justice Ginsburg had two. Justice Breyer had two. And Justice Thomas had none. And I think everyone assumed that that meant that one of the opinions written by the chief or Ginsburg or Breyer had been originally assigned to Justice Thomas because the chief tries to assign evenly. And so sort of the working theory was that Thomas had lost a majority along the way. That's not unusual. I mean, right, it happens that, you know, the original vote of conference is a little tentative and that once the justice assigned to write the majority opinion sets out to work, maybe folks get a little bit sort of pushed away from the position that they had tentatively endorsed at conference. I think it was a bit of a surprise that it was the Georgia copyright case because that didn't seem to be quite as high profile as some of the other big cases. There was a Wall Street Journal editorial that painted Justice Elena Kagan as the sort of secret power on the court, you know, the one who could sway Roberts. What did these articles show about her role? Folks have assumed for some time now that the chief and Justice Kagan are pretty close. They always talk reverently about each other in public. They seem to not be quite as sharp in their criticisms of each other when they're on opposite sides of the case. And so I think this is a lot of sort of assumption and premise, but it does seem that the chief in general was sympathetic, at least in more cases than we might have expected, to the positions being embraced by the more progressive justices. It wouldn't surprise me at all that Justice Kagan was the ambassador from that coalition. I think she and the chief speak the same language in a way that perhaps the chief and say Justice Sotomayor don't. Tell us about the change in votes in the case involving LGBT rights. We learned that there had initially been some discussion and perhaps even a tentative vote at conference for the court to split the difference and for the court to actually hold that, yes, Title VII applied to discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, but actually that it did not apply to discrimination on the basis of transgender status, and that indeed there was originally a 5-4 majority that way, and that as Justice Gorsuch sort of set to work on the opinion, a majority really coalesced around extending Title VII to both of those categories. One of the things that probably happened there, if these stories are right, is that it was very hard to actually write an opinion that drew the distinction that might have made sense when it was first discussed. And this is why the opinion writing process is such an important part of the court's work, because 
you know, there's an old expression that sometimes an argument just won't write because it might sound good when you sort of make the elevator pitch version of a tune, but when you actually have to put it to paper and spend pages defending the analysis, that oftentimes might be the biggest clue that the analysis doesn't work. In some cases, things change not because the justices have wildly switched or because they've been persuaded by some public pressure, but simply because the opinion they thought they were writing you know, doesn't turn out to be that convincing. The cases that got the most attention from the media and the public were the Trump subpoena cases. Those were seven to two votes. And apparently the first vote was close. Tell us what happened behind the scenes after the first close vote. So apparently there was some discussion of sort of splitting the difference and having the Vance case, the case about the New York DA, have the court come out pretty aggressively in favor of Vance and against Trump. But then the congressional case would have gone five for the other way, where the chief justice and the other conservative justices would have actually been much more critical of the congressional subpoena. And the reporting doesn't surprise me that in both cases, the court sort of moved away from such a sharply divided opinion and toward more of a consensus result. So we got a pair of seven to two opinions where there's a little bit for everybody. I think that's, again, probably the role of the chief, where it would have been very clear to the justices the importance of not coming down with two, five, four sharply divided conservative versus progressive splits in those cases, but rather to, even if it meant sacrificing some of the analysis, having the court speak with one voice as much as possible. If anything, in the long term, that may be the thing we remember most about the chief justice and this term was that in the cases that mattered, not only did he tend, with a couple of exceptions, to put his institutional concerns ahead of his own preferences, but that he also tried as best as possible to keep the court not out of politics soon, because that's never going to happen, but at least out of the naked tribalism of contemporary politics as much as possible. You know, it wasn't a perfect success, but I think it was a lot more successful than we might have predicted at the start of the term. Right, because the precedent, the Nixon and Clinton cases were unanimous decisions. So it really would have looked looked bad if they had a five to four decision. Exactly right. And I think it's not just, you know, the sort of the shadow of the precedent of the Nixon and Clinton versus Jones cases. I think it was also just, you know, understanding the moment we are in in American history and understanding the importance of trying to show that the courts have a function that is not just about you know, who has more votes. Um, And that's not simply a question of who appointed the most judges, that there actually are some, you know, overarching neutral legal principles that control even if you might not like the results. Now more than ever, June, I think that's a message we all need to hear. I think it's pretty important that the court, you know, consciously tries to send it. There wasn't a lot of dirt, so to speak. There wasn't a lot of dirt on the liberal justices. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's, I think that's probably because on the one hand, you know, I don't think it was necessarily the progressives who were leaking. Um, but on the other hand, because I think, you know, the sort of, it's not a surprise to anyone that in the major cases, you know, most of the of the progressive justices voted the way they did. I mean, there are a couple of exceptions. Justice Breyer had a couple of strange votes um, in some of the religion cases, for example. Breyer and Kagan, you know, joined more conservative majorities. Um, but I think, you know, the, the intrigue of the term, June, wasn't really so much about what was happening with the four more progressive justices. It was about the cases where they somehow found a fifth or even a sixth vote. And I think that was much less about them, and it was about the conservative justices who switched over. And I think that's why the stories have been focused there. You know, I, I don't think anyone's surprised that Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg voted the way they did in Bostock and the abortion case in the Trump financial records cases. You know, the, the, the dirt is always going to be about the surprises.
Do you think there'll be any consequences to these leaks? Will they be the justices be less communicative? Will there be a search for the leaks? I, you know, I, I don't know. There's a Newsweek column out this week um, arguing that, you know, this is a really big problem, that the chief has let it get out of control, and that if you can't get it under control, he should resign. Um, I don't think we're anywhere close to that kind of dramatic denouement here. I mean, the court has leaked before, and it will leak again. You know, I think the real question is whether the court thinks that these kinds of leaks are actually damaging to the institution. And, you know, my sort of gut reaction is that people like you and I care a lot about these leaks. Um, and maybe, you know, the advocates before the court and the Supreme Court press care a lot about these leaks. I'm not sure that there's any real traction, you know, among the sort of society at large more broadly who are shocked to discover that every once in a while someone in Washington leaks to the press. So I'd be surprised if anything formal comes out of this in response. You know, maybe there's a little bit more of an effort behind the scenes to discourage this kind of leaking by the justices. But of course, if that effort's successful, we'd never hear about it. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Steve. That's Stephen Vladek, professor at the University of Texas Law School. This week, the Supreme Court blocked a lower court order that required four California jail facilities to take specific steps to curb COVID-19. The 5-4 to four decision is in line with about two dozen emergency requests received by the justices challenging federal, state, or local orders during the pandemic. The court hasn't shown much willingness to second-guess emergency orders issued by public officials on COVID-19, rejecting churches, challenging shutdown orders, and voters seeking more options for casting ballots safely. Joining me is Neil Kinkoff, a professor at the Georgia State University College of Law. Neil, is there a single legal principle that's common to all these emergency rulings? Well, I think it's dangerous to think of it as falling under a single legal principle. The cases involve different regulations and involve different legal challenges. So it's hard to draw any kind of general conclusions from them. But there are a few points that you can make at, I think, a a broad level of generality. One of those points is that the court, I think, would like to defer to the decisions of local public health officials. And that's something that is sort of deep in the court's DNA. There's a line of cases from the late 1800s and early 1900s dealing with quarantines, generally not dealing with people being quarantined, but with quarantines of things like germ-infected rags or diseased animal carcasses. And in that line of cases, the Supreme Court was extremely deferential to the judgments of local officials that particular safety measures needed to be undertaken to protect the public health. And I think that you see that reflected in the court's opinions from that time, but all the way up to the present. The court knows that it doesn't know what is best for public health. And so it's going to be strongly inclined to defer to legitimate public health determinations of local officials. They seem to have consistently refused to exempt religious services from crowd size limitations imposed by state officials. But in many of those cases, if not all, it was five to four, the liberals versus the conservatives. And it really was the chief justice who ended up making the decision. So if there were strong case law, what does the dissent say in those cases? Right. So at some point, public health regulations can run into fundamental constitutional protections. 
and religious liberty would be one of those. Another of those would be fundamental voting rights components of the Constitution. So if you think about the religious liberty situation, I think the court is going to tend to be deferential to local determinations as long as they're sort of science-based and as long as they're neutrally applied. The most prominent of the religion challenges that's reached the court so far is the one out of California. And in that one, California treated religion better than it treated similar businesses. And so the religion argument against what California had done was remarkably weak. And it really tells you just how strongly the court has swung in favor of protecting religion that four members nevertheless would have struck down California's regulation. The other way that this can come up is if you think of the Wisconsin situation with respect to their primary election. Wisconsin decided, and I wouldn't say this was because of public health considerations, but the Wisconsin state legislature decided to stick with its existing election laws. And when that is introduced in the time of a pandemic, it creates real infringements, real and practical infringements on the ability of people to exercise the franchise. And so in a case like that, it's well within the court's purview, and in fact, well within what the court has historically always done, to say that while we defer to the science judgments of of the local officials, if they infringe people's right to vote, then the Constitution has something to say about that. And so the court's unwillingness to apply those kinds of considerations in the Wisconsin situation That was a real break with what the court typically does in voting kinds of cases. And the the case it most clearly flew in the face of was Bush versus Gore. The Supreme Court in that case did not simply defer to Florida and how it wanted to run its election. It said, we think that how you want to run your election runs contrary to the constitutional principle of one person, one vote, even though it was rather a stretch to say that that was the case. That's what the court held in that case. Well, if that's true, it's equally possible that Wisconsin's rules violate all kinds of constitutional protections relating to the ability of individuals to exercise their vote. Was that a five to four decision? It was. And again, Justice Roberts was in the majority. And the way he could reconcile those votes is by saying that he consistently deferred to local law although I don't think that really explains what he was doing in those cases. In the California case, I don't think he was particularly deferential to California. He just realized what any reasonable person would realize, and that is that California wasn't discriminating against religion. In fact, they were treating religion better. Houses of worship were not categorized with what you might otherwise have thought of as similar businesses. And then in the Wisconsin case, instead of saying he simply deferred, he said that the court was addressing a very narrow technical question about the meaning of Wisconsin law. And so he claimed he didn't have to get to the constitutional questions. Of course, the technical application of Wisconsin's law was the very thing that implicated the constitutional right to vote. And the dissenters made that point quite forcefully. So it's possible to say he's simply deferring to the states, but if you really get into what he's deciding, that doesn't actually explain his votes. 
the court reinstating Idaho's rules for ballot initiatives, does that fit under that reasoning? That could be put under the reasoning of the court deferring to the state's regulations, yeah. You could describe it that way. Again, I'm troubled, though, by a court simply deferring to those kinds of local election laws because they're not really public health determinations, and they're not public health determinations being made by public health officials. They are, in fact, political determinations being made by political actors, and they're not even sort of disinterested political actors. These are elections that those political figures themselves, these are elections they're running in. We anticipate that in the run-up to the election, there are going to be a lot of emergency petitions for the court based on voting, in-person voting versus voting by mail. There are all kinds of issues percolating through the lower courts. It seems like there's another case every day. Do these rulings indicate what the Roberts Court is likely to do with regard to future emergency election issues that may come up? I don't think it tells us very much. I think it may tell us that there is some preference on the part of the chief himself not to reverse local election laws. But the election in November is going to be a federal election in addition to a state election. And so it's going to implicate federal laws as well as state laws. And so the idea of deferring to the state won't apply with the same force that it does in these primary situations where there aren't federal laws dictating what happens, right? Federal statute dictating what happens. What about past decisions of the court as far as voting rights? Does that indicate that the court will tend to be conservative when it comes to the questions that arise in regard to voting by mail? That would be the indication. We don't have cases directly on vote by mail, but certainly the trend in election-related cases has been that the Republican Party wins. That's been the trend in the Supreme Court. And so I would expect for the Supreme Court to continue that trend this fall. And do you see in in all these cases, is it really up to Justice Roberts in the end? Right. He has positioned himself that way, um, and he seems to have sought that role, and that is absolutely one that he has embraced. Um, This term shows it, but we've seen it over the past years in cases like, well, the the Obamacare cases um, come very quickly to mind. Um, He is, to the extent there is a swing vote on the Supreme Court, he is it. And so all of the arguments in those cases are going to be pitched to him. What do you see in his jurisprudence this this past term? For example, the abortion case, the DACA case, the LGBTQ case. Do you see him trying to sort of mollify the public or present this image of the court as not being one-sided? Oh, I think he has been he has been adamant about presenting the court as not one-sided and as not partisan. Um, You'll recall when he rebuked President Trump for talking about um, judges by reference to which president had appointed them. Um, And he came back and said there aren't Clinton judges and Obama judges. There are just judges. And that is crucial to the legitimacy of the court and ultimately to the court's power. And Chief Justice Roberts understands that, I think, at a very fundamental level. Um, And so everything he does is calculated 
to preserve the public perception that the court is not partisan. Along this line, I wanted to get your take on the Center for American Progress is the latest progressive group to back term limits for justices. Do you think this will ever come to be? No, it requires a constitutional amendment. Um, And so to impose a set term on Supreme Court or federal judges would require something that virtually never happens. The Constitution has been amended at most 27 times. There's some debate about what the legitimacy of the 27. But assuming it's 27 times, 10 of those came in the first Congress. So in the more than 200 years since then, it's only been amended 17 times. It's extraordinarily difficult to do. Um, And it has never been the case that an amendment's been adopted in order to reform um, the federal courts. Some Democrats are advancing the idea of court packing. The Democrats would have to win, I I take it, the House and the Senate in order for that to even be thought of as a possibility. That's right. But unlike a term limit, the idea of adding seats to the Supreme Court is something that Congress can do by ordinary legislation, so simply passing a statute. And so that is that is a perfectly legitimate thing for Congress to contemplate and, and ultimately to do if they, if they see fit. Um, there was a time in the mid-19th century when there were 10 seats on the Supreme Court, so adding another seat wouldn't be unprecedented even. Um, but the size of the Supreme Court is left entirely to Congress's discretion, and they can add seats if they see fit. Um, to characterize adding seats as court packing is, it strikes me, tendentious, um, because it's just as easy to say that, well, the Senate's manipulation of Justice Scalia's vacancy, refusing to even allow a hearing for Merrick Garland, was itself court packing, and that adding a seat and adding a replacement justice um, unpacks the court. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Neil. That's Neil Kinkoff, a professor at the Georgia State University College of Law. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.